0: which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash boreyoutosleep that's try better H-E-L-P and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy You To Sleep listeners, with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash sleep. Tonight's readings comes from The Ethics of Cooperation by James Hayden Tufts. Published in 1918, the principles in this book still ring true today. It's amazing how far we have come, and how much we can accomplish through cooperation with others. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'd like to give a big shout-out to new Patreon this week, Rebecca Hammer. Becoming a patron is something I am extremely grateful for and happy that I am making a difference in your life. Thanks also to iTunes listener Maddox for your review on iTunes. I'm glad I've been able to make a difference and am grateful that you've shared this podcast with your family. Also thanks to Insta user JoyDeep1973 for appreciating me on Instagram. And also thanks to Mark and to Leanne for contacting me via the website. Your messages are truly heartfelt. The podcast is completely free and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If the podcast helps, a fantastic way to say thanks is to tell a friend who might also need help with their sleep please also subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. If you want, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com. I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The Ethics of Cooperation By James H. Tufts Chapter 1 According to Plato's famous myth, two gifts of the gods equipped man for living, the one, arts and inventions to supply him with the means of livelihood, the other, reverence and justice to be ordering principles of societies and the bonds of friendship and conciliation. Agencies for mastery over nature and agencies for cooperation among men remain the two great sources of human power. But after 2,000 years, it is possible to note an interesting fact as to their relative order of development in civilization Nearly all the great skills and inventions that had been acquired up to the 18th century were brought into man's service at a very early date. The use of fire, the arts of weaver, potter, and metal worker, of sailor, hunter, fisher, and sower, early fed man and clothed him. These were carried to higher perfection by Egyptian and Greek, by Tyrian and Florentine, but it would be difficult to point to any great new unlocking of material resources until the days of the chemist and electrician. Domestic animals and crude water mills were for centuries in man's service, and until steam was harnessed, no additions were made of new powers. During this long period, however, the progress of human association made great and varied development. The gap between the men of Santander's Caves or early Egypt and the civilization of a century ago is bridged rather by union of human powers, by the needs and stimulating contacts of society, than by conquest in the field of nature. It was in military, political and religious organization that the power of associated effort was first shown Army, state and hierarchy were its visible representatives. Then, a little over a century ago, began what we call the Industrial Revolution, still incomplete, which combined new natural forces with new forms of human association. Steam, electricity... Machines, the factory system, railroads. These suggest the natural forces at man's disposal. Capital, credit, corporations, labor unions. These suggest the bringing together of men and their resources into units for exploiting or controlling the new natural forces. Sometimes resisting the political, military, or ecclesiastical forces which were earlier in the lead, sometimes mastering them, sometimes combining with them, economic organization has now taken its place in the world as a fourth great structure or rather as a fourth great agency through which man achieves his greater tasks, and in so doing becomes conscious of hitherto unrealized powers. Early in this great process of social organization, three divergent types emerged— which still contend for supremacy in the worlds of action and of valuation, dominance, competition, and cooperation, all mean a meaning of human forces. They rest respectively on power, rivalry, and sympathetic interchange. Each may contribute to human welfare. On the other hand... Each may be taken so abstractly as to threaten human values. I hope to point out that the greatest of these is cooperation, and that it is largely the touchstone for the others. Cooperation and dominance both mean organization. Dominance implies inequality, direction, and obedience superior and subordinate. Cooperation implies some sort of equality, some mutual relation. It does not exclude difference in ability or in function. It does not exclude leadership, for leadership is usually necessary to make cooperation effective. But in dominance, the special excellence is kept isolated. Ideas are transmitted from above downward. In cooperation, there is interchange. Currents flowing in both directions. Contacts of mutual sympathy, rather than of pride humility, condescension civility, The purpose of the joint pursuit in organisation, characterised by dominance may be either the exclusive good of the master, or of the joint good of the whole organised group, but in any case it is a purpose formed and kept by those few who know. The group may share in its execution and its benefits, but not in the construction or in the estimating and forecasting of its values. The purpose in cooperation is joint. Whether originally suggested by some leader of thought or action, or whether a composite of many suggestions in the give and take of discussion, or in experiences of common need. It is weighed and adopted as a common end. It is not the work or possession of leaders alone, but embodies in varying degrees the work and active interest of it all. Cooperation and competition at first glance may seem more radically opposed. For while dominance and cooperation both mean union of forces, competition appears to mean antagonism. They stand for combination, it for exclusion of one by another. Yet a deeper look shows that this is not true of competition, in what we may call its social, as contrasted with its unsocial aspect. The best illustration of what I venture to call social competition is sport. Here is rivalry, and here in any given contest one wins, the other loses or few win, and many lose. But the great thing in sport is not to win. The great thing is the game, the contest. And the contest is no contest unless the contestants are so nearly equal as to forbid any uncertainty in advance as to which will win. The best sport is found when no one contestant wins too often. There is in reality a common purpose, the zest of contest. Players combine and compete to carry out this purpose, and the rules are designed so to restrict the competition as to rule out certain kinds of action and preserve friendly relations. The contending rivals are in reality, uniting to stimulate each other. Without the cooperation, there would be no competition, and the competition is so conducted as to continue the relation. Competition in the world of thought is similarly social, in efforts to reach a solution of a scientific problem or to discuss a policy, the spur of rivalry or the matching of wits aids the common purpose of arriving at a truth. Similar competition exists in business. Many a firm owes its success to the competition of its rivals which has forced it to be efficient, progressive. As a manufacturing friend once remarked to me, when the other man sells cheaper, you generally find he has found out something you don't know. But we also apply the term competition to rivalry, in which there is no common purpose to contests in which there is no intention to continue or repeat the match, and in which no rules control. Weeds compete with flowers and crowd them out. The factory competes with the hand loom and banishes it. The trust competes with the small firm and puts it out of business. The result is monopoly. When plants or inventions are thus said to compete for a place, there is frequently no room for both competitors and no social gain by keeping both in the field. Competition serves here sometimes as a method of selection although no one would decide to grow weeds rather than flowers because weeds are more efficient. In the case of what are called natural monopolies, there is duplication of effort instead of cooperation. Competition is here wasteful, but when we have to do, not with a specific product or with a fixed field, such as that of street railways or city lighting, but with the open field of invention and service. We need to provide for continuous cooperation, and competition seems at least one useful agency. To retain this, we frame rules against unfair competition. As the rules of sport are designed to play a premium upon certain kinds of strength and skill, which make a good game, so the rules of fair competition are designed to secure efficiency for public service and to exclude efficiency in choking or fouling. In unfair competition, there is no common purpose or public service, or of advancing skill or invention. Hence, no cooperation. The cooperative purpose or result is thus the test of useful as contrasted with wasteful or harmful competition. There is also an abstract conception of cooperation, which in its one-sided emphasis upon equality, excludes any form of leadership or direction, and in fear of inequality, allows no place for competition. Selection of rulers by lot in a large and complex group is one illustration. Jealous suspicion of ability, which becomes a cult of incompetence, is another. Refusals to accept inventions which require any modification of industry or to recognize any inequalities of service are others. But these do not affect the value of the principle, as we can now define it in preliminary fashion, union tending to secure common ends, by a method which promotes equality, and with an outcome of increased power. Shared by all. What are we to understand by the ethics of cooperation? Can we find external standard of unquestioned value or absolute duty by which to measure the three processes of society which we have named dominance, competition, cooperation, Masters of the past have offered many such, making appeal to the logic of reason or the response of sentiment, to the will for mastery or the claim of benevolence. To make a selection without giving reasons would seem arbitrary. To attempt a reasoned discussion would take us quite beyond the bounds appropriate to this lecture. But aside from the formulations of philosophers, humanity has been struggling, often rather haltingly and blindly, for certain goods and setting certain scenes and signposts which, if they do not point to a highway at least mark certain paths as blind alleys. Such goods I take to be the great words, liberty, power, justice, such signs of blind paths I take to be rigidity, passive acceptance of what is. But those great words, just because they are so great, are given various meanings by those who would claim them for their own. Nor is there complete agreement as to just what paths deserve to be posted as leading nowhere. Groups characterized by dominance, cutthroat competition, or cooperation tend to work out each its own interpretations of liberty power, justice, its own code for the conduct of its members. Without assuming to decide your choice, I can indicate briefly what the main elements in these values and codes are. The group of masters and servants will develop what we have learned to call a morality of masters and a morality of slaves. This was essentially the code of the feudal system. We have survivals of such a group morality in our code of the gentleman, which in England still depreciates manual labor, although it has been refined and softened, and enlarged to include respect for other than military and sportsman virtues. The Code of Masters exalts liberty for the ruling class and resents any restraint by inferiors or civilians or by public opinion of any group but its own. It has a justice which takes for its premise a graded social order and seeks to put and keep every man in its place. But its supreme value is power, likewise for the few, or for the status consisting of society, organized and directed by the ruling class. Such a group, according to Tresch, will also need war, in order to test and exhibit its power, to the utmost in fierce struggle with other powers, it will logically honor war as good. A group practicing cutthroat competition will simply reverse the order, struggle to put rivals out of the field, then monopoly with unlimited power, to control the market or possess the soil, it appeals to nature's struggle for existence as its standard for human life. It too sets a high value upon liberty in the sense of freedom from control, but originating as it did in resistance to control by privilege and other aspects of dominance. It has never learned the defects of a liberty, which takes no account of ignorance, poverty, and ill health. It knows the liberty of nature, the liberty of the strong and the swift, but not the liberty achieved by the common effort of all. It knows justice, but a justice which is likely to be defined as securing to each his natural liberty, and which therefore means non-interference with the struggle for existence except to prevent violence and fraud. It takes no account as to whether the struggle kills few or many, or distributes goods widely or sparingly, or whether indeed there is any room at the table which civilization spreads, though it does not begrudge charity if administered under that name. A cooperating group has two working principles. First, common purpose and common good. Second, that men can achieve by common effort what they cannot accomplish singly. The first, reinforced by the actual interchange of ideas and services, tends to favor equality. It implies mutual respect, confidence and goodwill. The second favors a constructive and progressive attitude which will find standards neither in nature nor in humanity's past, since it conceives man able to change conditions to a considerable extent and thus to realize new goods. These principles tend toward a type of liberty different from those just mentioned, as contrasted with the liberty of a dominant group. Cooperation favors a liberty for all, a liberty of live and let live, a tolerance and welcome for variation in type, provided only this is willing to make its contribution to the common weal. Instead of imitation or passive acceptance of patterns, On the part of the majority, it stimulates active construction. As contrasted with the liberty favoured in competing groups, cooperation would emphasise positive control over natural forces, over health conditions, over poverty and fear. It would make each person share as fully as possible in the knowledge and strength to combined effort, and thus liberate him from many of the limitations which have hitherto hampered him. Similarly with justice... Cooperation's ethics of distribution is not rigidity set by actual interest and rights of the past on the one hand, nor by hitherto available resources on the other. Neither natural rights nor present ability and present service form a complete measure since cooperation evokes new interests and new capacities. It is hospitable to new claims and new rights, since it makes new sources of supply available. It has in view the possibility at least of doing better for all than can an abstract insistence upon old claims." it may often avoid the deadlock of a rigid system. It is better to grow two blades of grass than to dispute who shall have the larger fraction of the one which has previously been the yield. It is better not merely because there is more grass, but also because men's attitude becomes forward-looking and constructive, not pugnacious and rigid. Power is likewise a value in a cooperating group, but it must be power, not merely used for the good of all, but to some extent controlled by all and thus equally shared. Also as so controlled and so shared is power attended by the responsibility, which makes it safe for its possessors. Only on this basis does power over other men permit the free choices on their part, which are essential to full moral life. As regards the actual efficiency of a cooperating group, it may be granted that its powers are not so rapidly mobilized. In small, homogeneous groups, the loss of time is small. In large groups, the formation of public opinion and the conversion of this into action is still largely a problem rather than an achievement. New techniques have to be developed, and it may be that for certain military tasks, the military technique will always be more efficient. To the cooperative group, however, this test will not be the ultimate ethical test it will rather consider the possibilities of substituting for war other activities in which cooperation is superior. And if the advocate of war insists that war as such is the most glorious and desirable type of life, cooperation may perhaps fail to convert him but it may hope to create a new order, whose excellence shall be justified of her children. A glance at the past roles of dominance, competition and cooperation in the institutions of government and religion and commerce and industry will aid us to consider cooperation in relation to present international problems. Primitive tribal life had elements of each of the three principles we have named, but the discovery by some genius of the power of organization for war, the principle of dominance won, seemingly at a flash, the decisive position... No power of steam or lightning has been so spectacular and wide-reaching as the power which Egyptian, Assyrian, Macedonian, Roman and their modern successors introduced and controlled. Political states owing their rise to military means naturally followed the military pattern. The sharp separation between ruler or ruling group and subject people, based on conquest, was perpetuated in class distinction. Gentry and simple, lord and villain, were indeed combined in the exploitation of Earth's resources. But cooperation was in the background, mastery in the fore and when empires included peoples of various races and cultural advance, the separation between higher and lower became intensified. Yet though submerged for long periods, the principle of cooperation has asserted itself, step by step, and it seldom loses ground beginning usually in some group which at first combined to resist dominance. It has made its way through such stages as equality before the law, abolition of special privileges, extension of suffrage, influence of public sentiment, interchange of ideas, toward genuine participation by all the dignity and responsibility of political power. It builds a Panama Canal, it maintains a great system of education, and has, we may easily believe, yet greater tasks in the prospect." It may be premature to predict its complete displacement of dominance in our own day as a method of government. Yet who in America doubts its ultimate prevalence?